From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent, here today with Professor Rich Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Hans Sinha, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking about the role of prosecutors and the job of U.S. attorneys. What are the different types of prosecutors and what roles do they have ethically and technically in the legal system? We'll also talk about access to courts. You can give us a call today if you have any questions or comments. The number is 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent here today with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Hans Sinha, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today, we're going to talk about the role of prosecutors and the job of U.S. attorneys. And we'll also talk about access to the court. And if you have any questions or comments for us today, you can call us at 877-672-7464. That's 877-MPB-RING. Or you can send an email to Legal Terms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon and Professor Sinha. Good morning, Sharita. Good morning. Sharita, it's great to have Hans on the show today. He runs, as you said, our clinical externship program. What, what does that, that mean? That, well, that's a, it's an experiential program. Our students actually go out you know, and, and take what they've learned in the classroom and uh, work in offices uh, around mm-hmm. the state, around the country. Hans has placements around the country. He's even had some international placements. Uh, and the students uh, work with lawyers, uh, most often uh, with organizational lawyers, government lawyers, uh, prosecutors, defend, public defenders, uh, those kinds of uh, organizations, to really learn uh, how to practice law. So it's a great program. Yeah, we, uh, we've had you on before, uh, Professor Sinhan. We're really glad to have you on today. This is a, a really interesting topic, and there are a lot of different directions that uh, we can go. But I wanted to, to start with some news that has uh, been Uh, recent mainly. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, Walter Scott, the case of Walter Scott, there was a a mistrial declared um, in his situation. Um, There was a juror and uh, apparently there were some uh, jurors who just were undecided and they just could not find uh, Officer Slager guilty. And so they have declared a mistrial. And and since we're going to be talking about prosecutors today, I was just curious about the, the process of a mistrial. Can a prosecutor retry a case? After a mistrial, how does that work? Right. So, so that's the case where I believe it was a hung jury. From my understanding, they deliberated for 24 hours over a period of four days. And it seems to have come down to I mean, it's a unanimous verdict that's required in, in, in that case. Uh, it's a murder charge in North Carolina, and that's in state court. And it seems to come down to one juror that was um, completely different thinking from the other 11 jurors uh, to hold out. And I think the judge sent it back a couple of times to re-continue deliberation. And finally, the four-person said that uh, they're just deadlocked and the judge declared a mistrial. So at that point now, um, everyone 
goes back to square one, so to speak. The state is free to re-prosecute that case, same charges. Mm. So when there's a mistrial, absent a very unusual circumstance where there was some kind of prosecutorial misconduct that caused that mistrial, the state, meaning the prosecutor, is able to retry the case. So in that case, uh, there's still a pending state charge, the same case, that can be retried, but also believe there's pending federal charges also. So they may have the state go first again and retry it, or they may go to federal court and let the federal uh, United States attorney try their case first. But retrials are, are, are not rare. They happen. They don't happen that often. But there's a strategic advantage for a retrial, meaning that uh, at this point, both sides know precisely what the other side is going to present. And in a case where the defendant testifies, it may give the state some advantage. They know exactly what he's going to say. They can prepare the next case. Mm-hmm. knowing what his testimony is going to be. At the same time, for the defense, they know exactly what all the state's witnesses and state evidence is going to be. Uh, I think in this case, it's pretty much a wash. They're going to retry it. If there's only one person that was a holdout, and, and some people may say it was a, an aberration, uh, I think if they had 11 people that were leaning towards a guilty as charged or guilty or lesser, they say we'll most likely get a, a verdict the next time. So I'm curious, what is the prosecutor's role in determining uh, who's selected to be on the jury, uh, or how, how does that process work? Well, there's there's wide dear process, both in state and federal court. Uh, in state courts, it seems to be usually a little more attorney-conducted wide dear. In the federal court, it's a little more judge-conducted wide dear. But still, uh, it, it's a wash, meaning that you bring in, for example, in a death case, you probably bring in 160 potential jurors. Those jurors have already been vetted to an extent, meaning that they are preliminary qualified to serve for jury duty. They, uh, they meet the state requirements in North Carolina to serve on duty. Um, and then you go through, in a capital case, actually a two-stage, you go through what's called a Witherspoon process where you initially look at the jurors and, and, and you talk to them about the death penalty. And this is an unusual case. They're asked for death. So you call out all potential jurors who, under no circumstance, can consider imposing death. From that point, then you go into the regular jury process, and the regular jury process is the same for the non-death cases, where both the state, the prosecutors, and the defense attorneys can then inquire into the jurors as to whether they hold any bias, whether they can be fair, and then select a jury. Most states give the state and the defense a certain number of peremptory challenges. So if a potential juror stands up and says, I can't be fair because I can't uh, follow the law, for example, that person will be excused for cause. And you can have as many for cause challenges as uh, necessary. But then each side will get maybe six or 12 in a capital case. They probably have 12 peremptory challenges. And those are being termed just because type challenges. So if a potential jury just seems to be the wrong person to sit on the case from the prosecutor's point of view or the defense point of view, uh, you can then challenge that. And then I have, for example, 11 challenges left for, cause, uh, for preemptive challenges. What you cannot do as a prosecutor or defense counsel, I cannot use racial motives or biases or gender motives or biases to excuse a potential jury. In other words, all citizens have a right to serve in a jury. And if I happen to be of a certain skin color or gender, that alone should not preclude me from doing my civic duty to serve in jury. So the jury selection process is a very important process. There is some guidance from the Supreme Court. It's called a Batson line of cases regarding 
not using race or gender to discriminate against potential jurors. And then you select a jury. And in this case, in North Carolina, both sides agreed upon those 12 people. They both thought they had uh, 12 people could be fair. And um, it, it came down to apparently 11-1 vote, and, and uh, they were hung. And then it was the mistrial declared. And Sharita, I just wanted to uh, – Hans said a French term, voir and that is the correct <laughs> way to pronounce it. That means to see and to speak. A lot of, a lot of lawyers I know, um, and this is how I was taught, called a voir dire because it's spelled V-O-I-R-D-I-R-E, but it is a French term that's really voir dire, but you'll, you'll hear it both ways. Yeah, I was Come from Louisiana. We try to use the, the French term. <laughs> yeah, I was Googling it as soon as he said it. Um, well, that's interesting about the 11 to 1 um, thing, because you would think if there were 11 people that feel a certain way, that one person wouldn't be able to override those 11. So that's a, a really interesting process. Um, another story that has been in the news was the uh, the shooting of Joe McKnight. Um, he was fatally shot in a road rage incident, and um, Ronald Gasser was arrested late yesterday uh, after initially being released last week without charges uh, because of uh, they were going to do some pending further further in- investigation. So I'm just curious um, about the decision for you know someone to kill someone and then. Uh, be given the luxury of going home that night as opposed to being arrested. So is that a a prosecutorial thing um, or is that a decision that the police have to make when it comes to whether or not you're going to file charges on someone? Right. I I think that was um, a preliminary first uh, decision whether to arrest someone or not on the street, so to speak, belongs to the the police. Or in this case, it was Jefferson Parish, the sheriff's department, Jefferson Parish. Um, and, and it seemed, just from reading the, the news reports, somewhat unusual for a shooting to occur and to have the person who admitted to the shooting to not be uh, detained and arrested at a point in time. Um, I mean, the, the, the sheriff will have the discretion. Uh, if it's a clear all-evidence point to a justifiable self-defense shooting, uh, they can choose not to arrest them. Um, that is very unusual, um, and, and I think they uh, reconsider that decision. Uh, so, so someone is arrested, so Mr. Glass is arrested. He's still, uh, of course, presumed innocent. He can still make bond if bond is set, and it will be set in this case. Uh, so that's a normal process. And then, for example, in Louisiana, they'll have 60 days for the prosecutor to review that case. So the, the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office will spend another 10 days, two weeks, to put all the evidence together. They gather whatever evidence they can find. Uh, witness uh, any uh, video recordings from, from surveillance cameras. It's my understanding the three casings were found inside Mr. Glass's car, which speaks towards uh, his point of uh, uh, his story, so to speak. And that will then be presented to Jefferson Parish uh, pro- uh, District Attorney's Office. Uh, uh, I used to be a prosecutor in that office, so uh, I think the process is, is they're going to review it very carefully, and they'll make a decision. And they may very well make a decision to charge Mr. Glasser for um, murder, for manslaughter, for negligent homicide, whatever case the, the evidence presents, or they may also, and, and it's a difficult call if the media is portraying a certain way, the prosecutor may look at all that and say, no, this is a justifiable homicide, and mm-hmm. to decline to press charges, to bring the, the formal charges. Uh, we're going back to the sheriff's department's decision not to detain or arrest Mr. Glasser initially, um, it was an unusual one, and apparently they have reconsidered. Um, I know the sheriff made a statement saying the easiest thing for him to do would have been to simply arrest. Apparently they thought, based on initial evidence, that was not the right decision. They have not reconsidered. 
But but that is there's an unusual wrinkle, and that the normal process is uh, crime is alleged to occur. The perpetrator will be arrested. There will be some time for the prosecutor to start to bring charges, and then it will be resolved either with no charges filed or charges filed, an indictment, and, and then proceed to trial. All right. Uh, before we go to the break, we have a call. Rich is in Gulfport with a question. Good morning. Rich, what do you have for us? I thought a person could not be arrested, I mean, tried twice for the same thing. What's the deal with that? You're referring to the mistrial in the North Carolina case? Yeah. Right. So um, we have double jeopardy in, in, in our, our legal system here. So if someone is tried and goes to verdict, uh, you cannot be retried in that same jurisdiction. So um, if the defendant in the North Carolina case had been found not guilty uh, or guilty of a lesser included charges, the state could not, not come back, could not come back and retry him for the same charges that he was found not guilty of, or in the case of a lesser included charges, cannot retry him for the higher charge that the jury uh, rejected. But if it doesn't go to verdict and there's a mistrial, meaning that a verdict has not been rendered by the jury, then the state is permitted to retry him uh, a second time. And there's one other wrinkle regarding double jeopardy, and we, 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 we think that that is a, a, a fundamental rule, and it is, but it's within the jurisdiction. So, for example, in the North Carolina case, if the defendant had been found not guilty in state court, the federal prosecutor could then retry him, or, or not retry him, try him under federal charges where the underlying facts are the same from the same shooting, but it would try them on a different, probably civil rights violation charges. So, yes, we have the double jeopardy rule in effect, and it applies in the same jurisdiction once a verdict has been rendered. But there are two exceptions. One would be mistrial. In this case, the state can retry them. And the second exception would be another jurisdiction, meaning usually the federal prosecutors can try them for the same offense under a different federal charge. Well, isn't a not guilty verdict the same as a mistrial? No. And so the mistrial occurs when the jury says we cannot re- reach a verdict. So they're saying we, we cannot come to an agreement, unanimous agreement, as to a not guilty or a guilty verdict. And the judge says then, well, you try a little bit harder. They come back and they say, sorry, judge, we can't do it. We cannot come to a verdict. The judge will then thank the jury and say, you know, you did best you can but you did not come to a verdict, so there's neither not guilty or guilty entered, and therefore the judge would then declare a mistrial, saying the trial was not finished, so to speak. We just never got to a verdict. And then under those circumstances, double jeopardy does not apply, and the state, meaning the prosecutor, is, is free to retry the defendant again. And there's no limit. Um, we, we, we retried one defendant four times, and then finally we said, you know, we're never going to convict him, so we let him go. Well, that is the verdict, though. If he's not guilty... Right. No, not guilty. It's absolutely a verdict. But before and not guilty, the jury has to come to a unanimous agreement that the defendant is not guilty. And if they don't come to that verdict, then it's a mistrial. So the mistrial happens before a not guilty or a, a guilty verdict. 
All right. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for that call. We appreciate it. We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about the role of prosecutors. If you have any comments or questions, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. We'll also talk about uh, the representation of uh, legal clients in court. 877-672-7464 is the number. If you want to join the conversation, that's 877-MPB-RING or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent here today with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Hans Sinha, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And we've, we're talking today about the role of prosecutors and the job of U.S. attorneys. Uh, also, we're talking about access to courts and representation of legal clients in criminal court. If you have any questions or comments about the roles of prosecutors and different charges, you can call us at 877 672 That's 877-MPB-RING, or you can send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. So, Professor, I was just curious about um, when we talk about prosecutors, what if during a case a prosecutor would discover that their client did something wrong and they were guilty in some sense? Do they have an ethical responsibility to come forward or remove themselves from the case? Uh, well, well the, the prosecutor represents the state. So in, in the state court, the district attorney represents the state of Mississippi, for example, and in the federal court, the uh, U.S. attorney represents the United States uh, of America. So I mean, they will bring the charges, and their clients is the state or the, the U.S. government, and they'll bring the charges on behalf of the government or the state against the defendant. So they don't have a client per se. I mean, they're representing the victims in, in a way but as a whole, they're representing justice and, and society. So yeah, I guess that's so what the, I meant—the victim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, if but the, yeah. So the prosecutor has has a dual role. They're both an advocate seeking to uh, achieve a, uh, a guilty charge. Once they screened a case and charged properly, um, the defendant should be guilty. So um, you then have to go through court and prove that. But if I have any concerns about uh, someone who's been arrested as suspect's guilt. I will not charge them. I'm only, only charge once. I've looked at all the evidence, and I'm convinced that the proper charge, uh, proper product, uh, thing to do is to charge them and then bring them into court. If I then find out, and that's my advocate role, I, I find people, please bring me people who have committed crimes that I then screen them and I charge them appropriately. If I then find out during that trial that something has happened or it's been a mishandling by the evidence or, or a witness has lied, 
then my duty as the minister of justice kicks in. I always have that duty, and that duty always takes president or my advocate duty. It doesn't ensure the justice is done. So I could be in the middle of trial and find out there has been some kind of misconduct occurred or there's some exculpatory evidence. I then need to look at that as exculpatory evidence. I need to bring it to the defense right away and the court right away. I cannot hide such evidence. And it may be that the misconduct or evidence is sufficient for me to decide to dismiss the charges. And I can do so before the trial. I can do so in the middle of trial. Uh, after a verdict occurs, I then have a duty to uh, set aside that verdict if there's sufficient exculpatory material that showed the defendant did not commit uh, the crime that he was charged for. So in that sense, the prosecutor's client is it's a broad one. It's both the government, the U.S. attorney, and the state, state of Mississippi, and the local prosecutor. But my client is also to do justice. So it's a, it's a broad uh, dual role, an advocate role to achieve a conviction when it's appropriate, and administer justice to make sure that justice is done. And that means, if it's a wrongful conviction, to fix that conviction as well. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to local and federal prosecutors, uh, how are they chosen? You know, because I, I believe that they're probably held to a very high standard when it comes to uh, being ethical and moral in the way that they handle cases. Uh, so what's that process of being chosen to become a U.S. attorney or a local prosecutor? Right. They, they are and should be held to a very high standard because it's a position that has uh, an enormous amount of discretion and very little supervisory control by outside parties, so to speak. The prosecutor has an enormous amount of power, and because of that, uh, they have to handle that power very wisely. So in the state level, most states have their local district attorneys elected. Um, and, for example, in Mississippi, you, you run for DA, and then you're elected. And then um, the only party, so to speak, that can remove you is the people. So you're beholden to people, and, and um, theoretically, if you do a poor job, the people should not reelect you the next time. Some states and the state prosecutor's offices are appointed by the government. Uh, that's a minority of states. Majority of states believe in the, the will of the people in election for prosecutors. On the federal level, um, it's more of a bureaucracy, and it starts at the top uh, with the uh, United States attorney, attorney general in D.C., and then there's various districts. So each state may have one or two districts. Mississippi, for example, has a northern district and a southern district United States attorney's office. And each one of the head United States attorney in the district is appointed by the president and are confirmed by the Senate, and they then sit at, at the, the discretion of the president. So uh, with the new administration coming in, um, uh, very likely most United States attorneys for each district in each state will, be, uh, will tender their resignation, and then there will be another. Uh, they may be kept on, or, or there may be a, a new person uh, appointed or confirmed by Senate to be a uh, United States attorney. And there will then be uh, many assistant United States attorneys in the federal uh, level and many assistant district attorneys in the state level. All right. If you're listening this morning, you have any comments or questions about the different types of prosecutors or the roles of prosecutors, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, so let's shift just a little bit and talk about uh, representation and criminal court. Uh, one story that has been in the news is uh, Dylan Roof. 
um, who shot the nine people in Charleston while they were in Bible class. Uh, his case is, a, is about to get started. It's a, it's a capital murder case. Um, and so at some point he fired his legal team and uh, wanted to represent himself. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that, the uh, a defendant's um, choice to represent himself, and is that at all wise? Well, I think first most people uh, agree it is a very unwise decision uh, for a defendant to represent himself. And, in fact, once someone is uh, permitted to represent himself, the, the judge will specifically instruct that defendant that even though I may permit you to represent yourself, it is strategically a very unwise choice and, and will likely lead to your conviction. That said, um, I think the Dylan Roof case um, in South Carolina is, is fairly typical in this sense. Um, so this is a capital case, which throws in a couple more wrinkles. But as a capital case, and he was appointed, uh, I'm certain, a fairly strong defense team since it's a capital case that they're seeking death. Uh, I think the defense team went to the U.S. attorney and said, look, why don't we plead to life? 33 charges. I think he offered a plea to life, maybe consecutive or concurrent. I don't know. And the prosecutor said, U.S. attorney said, no, we're, we're seeking death. So then they had to go to trial. And at one point during the trial early on, I think during the second or third day, um, the defendant, Mr. Roof, approached uh, the court and said, I want to represent myself. And um, back in 1963, the Supreme Court under Gideon B. Wainwright said that pursuant to the Sixth Amendment, you have a right to assistance of counsel at your defense. So from that time on, people have been understood to have a right to counsel. But in 1975, there's another case, um, the Supreme Court looked at whether or not you have a right to represent yourself as well. And, and the court said yes. And the language in the Sixth Amendment regarding counsel is, is not you have a right to counsel, it's you have, quote, right to assistance of counsel, unquote. So the court said it's a fundamental decision, and if you're charged with a crime, we will provide counsel to you if you need it, but if you want to represent yourself, you may also do so. But to represent yourself, the court has to go through some examination of the defendant and, and make sure that he's competent or she is competent to represent themselves. So in this case, uh, in, in Mr. Roof's case, that the court uh, ensured himself that uh, Mr. Roof was competent to represent himself. Uh, and and um, once they made a determination, the judge instructed or said, yes, you can represent yourself, but he's keeping the defense team on as standby counsel. And I think what happened there, they went through a couple of wardier days, and then Mr. Roof just... Uh, Reapproached the court, the judge, and said, um, in essence, that he wants to have his defense team represent him for the guilt phase, and should it come to the penalty phase, then he wants to represent himself. So when you when you represent yourself, you you traditionally have a standby counsel um, that uh, that assists you. But in terms of being unwise, there's a it's a history to this, especially in in capital cases, and uh, they normally end up in death. Uh, in 19 uh, 2013. Remember the, the shooting in Fort Hood mm-hmm. as a U.S. major killed 13 people? Well, he represented himself, and he got the death penalty. Uh, so it's a, in terms of strategic, it's a fairly unwise decision. Uh, again, then there's a 2015 shooting in Kansas. Mr. Miller he shot three people at Jewish uh, Community Center there, represented himself. He got death. Um, Colin Ferguson, if you remember, back in the 1990s, was shooting a Long Island railroad train. as a massacre on a train. And this brings up one of the hardest parts for a prosecutor to, to handle someone representing himself. Mr. Ferguson was, by all accounts, a fairly uh, despicable man. He was given permission to represent himself by the judge, and he took that 
and, and, and milked it as most he could. He represented himself, including at one point being able to cross-examine uh, one of the mothers of one of the victims that he shot to death. And just imagine the, the horrible uh, nature of that, of, of having to face the man who killed your children. So that's one of the problems with letting defendants represent himself. But uh, the courts as a whole uh, let him do it. Uh, <clears throat> and Mr. Ferguson also got, got death, so uh, the trend continues in that sense. You can also throw in one more thing in that many times defendants who represent themselves, especially in capital cases, are, are somewhat um, – uh, they, they may not be legally crazy, but there's something wrong with them. And they generally do not want to present mitigating evidence of their mental illness in, in the, cap, in the uh, penalty phase, uh, which is why many times they end up getting, uh, getting death uh, when they represent themselves. There's an interesting case going back from uh, 1992 in Texas. <clears throat> there's a defendant who I think he killed um, his uh, children or his wife. I forgot what it was, Ms. Scott Panetti. And he wanted to represent himself, and he was just crazy. He was allowed to represent himself, and he, was, he wore in court a pink uh, cowboy outfit, and he wanted to subpoena Jesus Christ and John F. Kennedy. So sometimes there oh. has to be a limit to well, who, who you let represent himself. Yeah. And, you know, one, one thing, Sharita, is that uh, criminal defendants also have a right to testify constitutionally. And even if they're represented, that can present a problem for a lawyer when the client says, basically, you know they're going to lie on the stand. You have to let them testify because they have a constitutional right. But our, our role as lawyers is we have to make sure we're not part of what becomes and perjury. Uh, and, and that's a, an interesting line that you have to, have to cross as well. You basically put the client on the stand and say, what is your story? Mm-hmm. So that you're not part of the, the, the interaction. So being a criminal, being a criminal prosecutor and a criminal defendant, very important part of our justice system, and and uh, a lot of nuance to it too. There's right. one more thing about people representing himself, like Professor Gerson said, uh, in terms of testifying, um, and he learned from experience as a prosecutor. One now and then you run up against uh, a very uh, uh, smart defendant, um, and if they know what they're doing, they can ask the court to represent themselves. They have standby counsel. They can then, meaning the defendant, can talk to the jury in voir dire. And then during uh, opening statement, give a very good opening statement. And then the defendant can sit down and say, Judge, from now on, will my defense counsel represent me? And what that defendant has done is kind of tweak the system, trick the system. He's been able to talk, in essence, give his statement to the jury without me as a prosecutor being able to cross-examine him. So sometimes, and that's very rare, we have a defendant who's sly as a fox. But the ones who know it, they know how to play the system. Okay, we have a call to get to. Dudley is in Vardaman. Good morning, Dudley. What do you have for us? Hi, Dudley. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Now, I have been real concerned about the fake news thing, um, and especially after the guy shot up the restaurant in, in Washington. Is there some way that somebody can be prosecuted, or is just, or what will happen with incidents it's like this? Well, I think it's two, two, two levels. I mean, the, the gentleman who apparently drove up from, I think, North Carolina and, and, and fired one shot from his rifle in a restaurant, I mean, he'll be prosecuted on some state charges, maybe a federal charge, be transported something across state lines. Um, but, but that will probably be an aggravated assault. It's a fairly minor charge. I don't think he injured anyone. But So that person will be prosecuted, the perpetrator of actual offense. Now, I think your question probably goes towards 
stopping these fake news that make crazy people do crazy things. And that's right. a harder thing. Um, uh, I mean, uh, we got a First Amendment uh, involved here and, and also how to trace down who actually put the fake news on. So there's no crime per se uh, absent reaching slander of a person. Um, and that would be a civil case more more likely uh, to prosecute someone who puts on fake news. And, you know, from a from a us surviving as a democracy, there may be an issue we need to deal with. But at this point, someone puts on fake news, absent some really unusual circumstance, it's unlikely you're going to be prosecuted. All right, Dudley, thank you so much. We appreciate your call. Uh, we need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue the conversation. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the roles of prosecutors and what they do from an ethical and technical perspective and the, the legal system. And we'll also talk about access to courts and diminishing the use of the court system to resolve disputes. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you have any questions about uh, what prosecutors do. Do you think people should be able to represent themselves in court? Call us 877 7464 is the number. That's 877-MPB-RING or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Hans Sinha, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program. And today we've been talking about the role of prosecutors and the job of U.S. attorneys. And also we'll get to uh, access to courts in just a moment as well. Uh, but if we could back up just a moment and uh, talk about um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton during the presidential campaign, uh, Donald Trump was threatening to prosecute Hillary Clinton because of her emails. Uh, so have there been any more discoveries about the possibility of that happening? I know Donald Trump maybe said that he had kind of changed his mind and that he wasn't going to pursue prosecuting her. But what's the likelihood that that could even happen? Well, it depends. Uh, under our traditional system, a decision by a U.S. attorney, meaning that a federal prosecutor prosecutor, should be handled aside and apart from any political campaign. I mean, that's what kind of sets us apart from the banana republics down the south of the border. So I think that was hyperbole probably by uh, President-elect Trump when, when he uh, led those chants to lock her up and promised to prosecute her. He has then somewhat backed off that and said that, uh, I think his words were, he didn't want to prosecute, he didn't want to upset or hurt her family. Uh, again, I think all that was part of the election as we move into him being president um, if they pursue that, then the U.S. attorney would uh, 
through investigation at FBI, we'll look at it targets. And uh, because of some unusual things that happened under the Obama administration with some President Bill Clinton talking to U.S. attorney or the attorney general, uh, they left that discretion with a charge and not with the FBI, and the FBI said there's no, no case here that, that was prosecutable. Now, that does not prevent another attorney general from reexamining that case. I mean, they can always do so. And then if they believe there's sufficient evidence to go forward, they can then bring a prosecution. Um, but it's unlikely that's going to happen, I think, both from the political point, since Mr. Trump has, has backed off those campaign slogans, and if the FBI done did a, a thorough investigation, which presumably they did, and they came to the conclusion that there's no prosecutable case, it is unlikely another U.S. attorney, United States attorney, attorney general, is going to look at a case and determine to prosecute. It doesn't mean they can't. I mean, if there's evidence to prosecute, they should go forward and prosecute. If there's no evidence to, to, to prosecute, they should not do it. But what should not happen is to let the political campaign dictate who will be prosecuted in the United States of America. That is antithetical uh, uh, to, to our, our history and our, our uh, democracy. All right, uh, listeners, if you have any comments or questions about anything we've talked about today, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. If you want to know more or have your own thoughts about the roles of prosecutors, uh, what they do ethically or technically in the legal system, you can give us a call. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about people representing themselves in court? Do you think that is a good or bad idea? Uh, If you have any thoughts about the idea that Donald Trump could prosecute Hillary Clinton about her emails, call us 877-672-7464 is the number that's 877 mpb ring we do have some lines open you can also send an email to legal terms at mpbonline.org uh, so another pretty popular topic uh, professor sinha is access to courts um, so talk a little bit about criminal court defendants um, and their entitlement to counsel right so um uh, in that sense, an access to court. I mean, a criminal defendant has full access to court. Many times they don't want to be there. I mean, they're arrested and they're dragged into court. Uh, and then if they can afford counsel, they will then hire their own counsel. But then uh, after the 1963 case of Gideon versus Wainwright, Supreme Court interpreting the language from the Sixth Amendment uh, that specifies you have a right to assistance of counsel, they said that once you're in court and if you're indigent and if you cannot afford counsel, then a counsel will be appointed to you. Uh, so in state court, uh, there are some jurisdictions that have state public defender's offices, and those attorneys work and do nothing but represent criminal defendants. They do not have an outside uh, practice generally. They're just public defenders, and they do generally great, great work. And then some jurisdictions, for example, Mississippi, um, some counties appoint one or two private attorneys to serve as the public defender's, in Lafayette County, for example, there's two attorneys who serve as public defenders in addition to their private practice, and they will then accept appointments from the court to represent people who otherwise cannot afford counsel to get uh, to get the representation. So there's so in, nothing in a criminal sense, really that says that um, you know paid counsel is uh, of a higher quality than uh, appointed counsel to criminal defendants. No. Uh, you know, if, if you have unlimited funds, I think many people point to the O.J. Simpson case. So you can put together a so-called dream team and, and, and litigate every little thing. Uh, you may wear the prosecution down and, and be able to either convince or fool the jury. Uh, and, and some people look one way in the O.J. Simpson case, another one. But the normal cases are that uh, uh, if you can afford private counsel, you hire your private counsel, counsel of your choice. If you can't afford it, then you get a public defender. 
there is a perception that the private attorney, because he or she is hired, is better and of higher quality. That may be the case. It may also not be the case. Uh, there are many public defenders, and precisely because they are in court every day and they know everything, every twist and turn of how that system works, how the prosecutor puts the case together and how the judge thinks, many times the public defender is actually the best person to have you represent hmm. uh, you in a criminal case. But um, there, there's, like everything in life, there are some public defenders who are great, some who are not as good, or some public attorneys are great and some who are not as good. But in terms of going to trial without an attorney, that will not happen. You, you either have an attorney that you retain, meaning hire, you have public defenders appointed to you, or you represent yourself pro se, and in that case, the judge would appoint an attorney to be your standby attorney. All right, we need to take our last break of the hour. When we get back, we'll wrap up the conversation today about the role of prosecutors, uh, access to courts. If you have any questions or comments, you want to uh, join the conversation, feel free to do so. We do have some lines open. If you have questions about uh, people representing themselves in court, do you think that's a good or bad idea? If you have any thoughts about prosecutors and their roles, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. Also, we touched on uh, Donald Trump and his decision uh, or indecisiveness about prosecuting Hillary Clinton about her emails. If you have any thoughts about that, 877-672-7464 is the number or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent here today with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Hans Sinha, clinical professor of law and director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we've been talking about the role of prosecutors and U.S. attorneys. Uh, we've also talked about access to courts. You can give us a call this morning if you have any questions or comments about your own legal rights. Uh, do you have thoughts about people representing themselves in court? Do you think that is a good or bad idea? Do you have any questions about the role of prosecutors, the way they are selected, how they decide on what charges to bring. And if you have any questions about uh, Donald Trump and his decision uh, to prosecute Hillary Clinton, he hadn't made that decision yet. But if you have any thoughts on that, uh, maybe you feel one way or the other on left or right, you can call us 877-672-7464 is the number. We do have some lines open and some time left. That's 877-MPB-RING or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. All right, we're going to go back to the phones. Charles is in Mobile with a question. Good morning, Charles. What do you have for us? Uh, yes. Uh, my question uh, is um, <clears throat> deals with traffic court. But uh, a few years ago, through a mistake, not of my own making, so a, a court mistake, my driver's license was suspended. Before I was able to clear that up, I was stopped 
in another county, okay, and, of course, the charge was driving with a suspended license. Now, once I got my record clear in the county where the error occurred, I brought that information to the other county, and the prosecutor said he didn't care and that I could either plead guilty to driving with a suspended license or I could go to jail. I'm just wondering, the underlying cause of the second charge was a mistake on the part of the court in another jurisdiction. That was cleared up, and, well. Charles, I think you're in a, you're in a bind there. Um, I mean, so in the second county, uh, I take it when you were driving, your license had been suspended, albeit by a mistake in the first county. Yes. So when a prosecutor in the second county, that's where, where the discretion of the prosecutor comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and not knowing anything else about your case or how long ago where the mm-hmm. prosecutors were, obviously. But mm-hmm. the prosecutor in the second county had every right to do what he or she did, uh, as, he, as you described it. You can say, I don't care okay. the reason why you're driving without a license, mm-hmm. and you need to go forward and you pay the fine or suffer the consequences. However, discretion, a prosecutor has uh, mm-hmm. uh, discretion also to dismiss a charge. So he or she could have looked at those charges and says, look, you know, what do you say? It makes sense. It could double check with mm-hmm. the first county. says, yeah, there really was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And if he or she chose to do so, he or she had the discretion to null a prosecutor or, or dismiss your charges and say, you know, um, mm-hmm. it looks like it was a mistake and, and I'm not going to go forward. That said, um, uh, the so prosecutor had, had, had the discretion to do either one of them. Eight. Sounds like he chose the second one. Yeah. But I I'm sorry. Basically, permanent, you know, granted it's just a traffic ticket, but I first have a, a personal, you know, a block mark on my permanent record, and it's basically due to a mistake by a court clerk in another county. Right. There's no... Um, uh, uh, so is, is this charge pending in the second county, or has it no, been no, resolved? No, it's all, this, is, this, is, this is over and done with more than a year ago, but course it's still sticks with me since i was actually forced to plead guilty to a crime i did not commit hmm. and i mean this is this is traffic i can understand you know <laughs> well actually i couldn't understand anything if if they find out that you didn't do that that someone else made a mistake and that's why your record is like it is once that's right. cleared up it doesn't absolve you i mean I, see, I guess my, my, my position is is that someone at the courthouse made a mistake that became my problem. And right. Now, I, th- I think what sorry, you're articulating is, is correct, but <laughs> the, the problem is once you brought that to the second jurisdiction, that was your shot, your chance to explain it to the DA and or take it to trial and explain it to the judge. Um, you know, again, the prosecutor had discretion to accept explanation, dismiss the charges, or to not accept explanation and to proceed with the prosecution. At that point, I mean, you had a choice of plead guilty or going to trial and, and seek to explain to a judge. After that happens, after that conviction is final, it's hard to reopen a case. So, I mean, I don't want to be a bearer of bad news, but I understand what you're saying. But at this stage, from, from what you're describing, it sounds like the second conviction is final and the appeal time is probably run. So, um, it, it may it may remain unless you go back to prosecutor asking to reopen the case and a judge agrees to do it. But if it's more than a year ago, all times to reopen a trial, to motion new trial or appeal issues has probably run as well. I don't want to say it's unfair, but it sounds like uh, based on describing it, it may not have been been uh, the fairest of decisions. 
All right, Charles, thank you for your call, and uh, we do wish you good luck in the future. We, we do appreciate your call, though, and good luck to you. Um, so uh, we were talking about access to courts. Um, could you talk a little bit about the traditional legal si- assistance, such as through unions and, um, you know, what kinds of issues have been present with that? Yeah, I think um, we've been talking uh, about access to courts for defendants in criminal cases to represent themselves or not. But I mean, mo- most most of our listeners and most people in America are, are not going to be dragged into court in criminal court. We're going to use the court system to resolve civil disputes. And it seems that there's less and less access to courts in terms of the civil uh, uh, process uh, uh, for, for many factors, but two may be fundamental one is that if you don't have an awful lot of money, it's really difficult to either bring a civil suit because it costs a lot to retain lawyers to do so if you're going to retain a lawyer. Uh, and the second thing is if you're a defendant, someone sues you, it's very expensive also to defend yourself. So if someone sues you and if it's a corporation or, or someone with means, you may very well end up settling that suit, uh, although you may not feel good about the settlement. Um, and, and just to give some examples, I think two things which, which come into place. One is the cost of attorneys. And, and for example, in 1985, the average law firm partner billing rate per hour was $112 per hour. Wow. In 19, I'm sorry, in 2012, and that's not even now, that's 2012, uh, the ra- average rate was $536 per hour. So it, it is an exorbitant number of money, amount of money to just retain a counsel. So that, that is hard for people to, to actually access the, the civil justice system to, to resolve a dispute. The second thing that's happened, and, and this may be one of the major uh, factors, is that um, as normal people now, we sign without thinking about it a whole bunch of contracts. It could be an employment contract. It can be our cell phone service contract. And most contracts now have binding arbitration clauses where the consumer, this individual person going up against the corporation or employer, has already signed in that contract an agreement that if there ever is a dispute, I, the consumer, agree to not go to court, but I'm going to have it resolved by private arbitration. And that removes a large part of our population from the judicial system. That's then handled outside of the court system. So there's no public discourse. There's no public oversight, so to speak as a private arbitration, and that's preventing a lot of people from getting uh, access to the judicial system. Well, Professor, thank you so much for being on today. You really shared some great information, and hopefully uh, folks were helped today by listening. Professor Gershon, thank you for being on as well. Uh, That's going to wrap us up. Jonas Adams was our board operator. I believe Kevin Farrell was our call screener. Stay tuned. Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress is coming up next right here on MPB Think Radio.